Heavenly Father, we thank you for Isaiah. We thank you, Father, that you've preserved these words for 3,000 years. We pray today that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause them to be a living word, a word that challenges us, rebukes, encourages, and corrects us. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Fantastic. Well, I've, uh, I very much appreciate uh, the, the readings that were brought to us. Uh, thank you, Luke, for jumping in and dealing with the uh, name sandwich that you kind of got right at the start there. Uh, before we open into Isaiah, I thought we might ask the question that I think sits behind the sermon today. We'll come back to it at the end by way of application. I want to ask the question, is God trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? Uh, someone said, uh, when you're squeezed, uh, what, you, what you value most is what comes out. Okay, So under pressure, we'll turn to, we'll present the thing that's right in the core of who we are. Is trust in God what comes out of us in the midst of hardship and trial and difficulty? Or does uncertainty and fear and doubt And it's not to say that there will never be a place for these things, but do we have an assurance in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty that God is trustworthy? For many of us, there may have been times in your life when you've been caused to doubt that. Will God hold up his end? Some of you might be doubting that now. What I want to do is turn our attention to this part of the book of Isaiah and see four great reasons for the trustworthiness of our God. Four great reasons for the trustworthiness of our God. Well, let's jump in. Uh, I I had fun digging around. I I like maps. I know Matt likes maps as well. Uh, I have maps. The reason I want to show you maps in church is I want you to believe with me, first of all, that what we're talking about happened, really happened. Not, not just in a make-believe, far-off place like any other book, but in real earthy history, space and time, in places that you could go to today. And so I love this uh, photo from space of the Middle East. Uh, you've got Egypt down here, and you can see why only parts of Egypt are inhabitable. Uh, that's the Nile kind of running through there. Um, then you've got Saudi Arabia down here, Israel just here. And then Syria up here, and Jordan, and Iraq, and further up here you've got Turkey. Geography is God's canvas, and I want to just quickly show you where we're talking about today. So have a look with me at the, uh, the name sandwich that Luke got in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1. If you can open it up. Uh, it says this, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah... King Rezan of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now, I reckon once that, once that reading starts, everyone's mental screensaver goes on. And you start looking at whatever it is that's on your mental screensaver and just going, what the? What, what on earth is going on here? So let's, let's dive in a little bit. The King series that we went through will have given you some good context. But here we have Jerusalem just here in Israel. The ruling king is a guy called Ahaz. Uh, Up here we've got how many years he ruled for, that's 16 years, and we've got a thumb to tell you what we think about him, good or bad. 
Bad. Okay, so we know he's a bad guy. He ruled in Jerusalem. He's ruling in the southern part. Remember, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. Israel up the top, Judah down the bottom. Okay? Ahaz is ruling down the bottom there. Then we get these other players. Who are they? We have a guy called Pekah, who's the king of Ephraim, also known as Israel. Look, you listen to this and you just go, can't you just say the same thing in the same language, right? It's a bit like referring to the Socceroos, okay? Who are the Socceroos? Anyone know? They just won the Asian Cup. Anyway, forget about that. They're a soccer team. They play with a round ball, okay? There we go. You could call them the Socceroos. That's their official name. You could call them the Australians. You could call them the Aussies. You could call them the green and gold, right? And you'd be referring to the same thing. It seems like Isaiah is on a bit of a poetic bent to call people in this passage everything except the same name he used before. Okay? Now, that's very confusing for us, but I imagine it was poetic for the people who were listening. Okay? So Ephraim is also Israel, is also um, uh, the northern kingdom, uh, is also connected to um, uh, the head of, uh, the, head of um, the, the northern tribe, the city is what I'm looking for. What's the city on the... Samaria, thank you. Yeah, okay. So it's got all of these names. That Pekah is a king of the northern kingdom. Okay? He has another mate further up the road who's called Rezin, the king of Aram. Aram is also Samaria, and the, the head capital city of Samaria is Damascus. So as we hear Aram, as we hear Syria, as we hear Damascus, as we hear Rezin, all one thing. Bear with me. What on earth are these names doing? What are they doing? Well, these two guys have decided to get together and go and attack Judah and take it over and incorporate it into a kingdom. Okay? That's what they're doing. In order to ward them off, Ahaz looks to the superpower, which is Assyria, and says, ah, the only way I'm going to get out of this, I've got two kings allied against me, I'm going to get the guy with the sledgehammer and put him on my team. See how he's now blue? See the blues ring around the outside, matching into Ahaz? That's connection. And the way he did that was he said, I'm going to sell all of the gold in the temple. I'm going to take all the precious things in the temple and ship them off to our superpower to buy his help. And then he's going to come and stamp on these guys. Okay? Now, do you think Assyria loves and serves God? Okay. Very good. The answer is no. Uh, they are a godless superpower and they're a particularly unattractive, violent people. Okay? And so what God's king in Judah did was essentially turn in trouble away from God and towards the superpower of his day. Do you think God's going to like that? No. But if you're sitting at the strategy table, it's probably a good move, right? Right? We're going to get the bigger boot to come and stamp on the guys who are attacking us. This is what we will often do. What will be the most powerful thing that I can find help for in my time of trouble? Forget about God. What could I do? With money or influence or people, we turn away from God and we turn to what we think is most powerful in our world. So today, we're going to see on God's canvas how that worked out for the people of Judah. We're going to talk today about prophecy. And the book of Isaiah 
we've already been diving into it. And Matt made this point in a sermon a couple of years ago, but not all of you were there, so I'm going to make it again. Uh, Prophecy, we're hearing God speak. He's saying his word through his people to be announced. Prophecy is God speaking. Prophecy has two parts to it very often. We're going to see those parts here. Have a look with me at Isaiah chapter 7 and verses uh, 2 to 7. We're going to hear this again. Now the house of David was told. Oh, by the way, here's another turn of phrase. House of David, who's that? King David, his kingdom, Judah, his king. Okay, So the king who's ruling on David's throne in Judah. The house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the heart of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, this is prophecy, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub. And you go, cool name. His name means something. You ready for this? His name means the remnant shall return. Go and take your son, the remnant shall return, and meet Ahaz. Where should I meet him, God? Well, meet him at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. How exact is that? It's pretty specific, isn't it? You'll find him there. Go there. Incidentally, the reason they're probably going there is you go and look at this pool to work out how much water is in Jerusalem and how long you might be able to withstand a siege. So why is the king looking there? He's trying to look to his own strength. Say to him, be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Aren't they great words of encouragement? Because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah, all one thing. Don't worry about the guys up north. Aram and Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tobiel king over it. Basically, let's take it over and put a puppet king in place. Don't worry about who the son of Tobiel is. We're going to put our man in charge of Judah. Yet, this is the good bit. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, we could end the sermon there, couldn't we, and just go home? Not because of all the history, but, but isn't that just great? Stand firm in your faith. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. Trust God. God has actually given a direct revelation and said, this isn't going to happen. Hang in there. Hang in there. So here's the thing. In prophecy, we have two things happening. We often have, very often, a present fulfillment. It'll be about something right now. And then often it will also be about something that's in the future, something that's yet to come. So the prophet's saying something like, morning tea will happen. And you're like, yeah, that's good. It'll happen in just a couple of minutes. It, it'll be good. And, and morning tea will happen gloriously when we get in our building and we've got a brand new kitchen and space to have it, right? So there's morning tea will happen and morning tea will happen, right? So... There's kind of this dual fulfillment thing. So what that means is there's prophecy in the present. It must mean something now, but very often it's got a future as well 
that we need to look to. Does that make sense? Two, two parts. Okay, so it'll mean something for Ahaz and it'll mean something for us here at New Life today. Brilliant. Let's, let's try and work out what's going on. Okay, so God has just spoken to him and said, guess what? This disaster, it's not going to happen. And now we're going to see something that happens next. Have a look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest, deepest depths or the highest heights. That's pretty good, isn't it? Hey, dude, you're probably feeling a little bit uncertain. So God says, ask me for a sign. You can ask me for anything. Have a look at how sinful this response is. Are you ready? But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. What? There is a bit in the Bible that says, don't put the Lord your God to the test, but that's if you're inventing the idea and trying to test God. God here is saying, ask me for a sign. And this guy says, I don't want your stinking sign. Your Bible tells me not to ask for a sign. He's talking to God. God is saying to them, I'm willing to bolster your faith. I'm willing to assure you in this difficulty. Just ask me for anything. Does that sound like a good offer, incidentally? Would you take it up? Yes, Lord. You can put a big tick in the sky made out of clouds in green colour, and I will be encouraged. But he says, no, I don't want your, I don't want your sign. I would never sin. Terrible. Terrible response. So, uh, so we see uh, what, what happens here. Uh, then Isaiah said, I think it's on the next slide. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? I think Isaiah's getting a bit shirty. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? It would be enough for you to be annoying me, right? Will you try the patience of my, of my God also? Do you see how significant that is? Will you try the patience of my God? Clearly he's not your God anymore. You won't ask him for a sign when he offers to give it to you. Will you try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want a sign? You're not going to ask for a sign? Therefore, God's going to give you a sign. Wow. We're going to come back to what that sign is uh, very soon. Oh, go back. Um, The next thing. So we've got prophecy set up. We've got a request for a sign. We've got God saying, I'm going to give you a sign. But before we get to that, I want you to hear very carefully something about the sovereignty of God. Now, if you've never heard this word before, sovereignty, okay? Basically, it means God is king over all. God is king over all. He's unstoppable. He's powerful and irresistible in his plan. God is sovereign. And this is going to, we're going to come back to this at the end and go, if we believe that God is sovereign, yes, we should trust him. So we're seeing God is sovereign. We're going to see how God is sovereign in this passage here. He's sovereign, he's king over all in the way that he relates to Assyria, the superpower. You may think, as you look at the powers of the world, for instance, at the moment, Russia's doing some interesting things in the Ukraine and doing all sorts of things. You might think they're so big and powerful. They are calling the shots. Vladimir Putin is calling the shots from somewhere in Moscow, right? He's working out what his plans and strategies are. He is the one who's determining the course of history at the moment. And I want you to see that's wrong. Have a look with me at how God deals with Assyria. We're going to have a look at verses 
uh, 18 to 20 of chapter 7. So come down to verse 18. In that day, a day of judgment that will come because Ahaz has rejected God, a day of judgment will come. In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. Lest you think that there's going to be actual flies and actual bees, it's metaphorical language because he's writing poetry. Okay, I'm going to call for lots of people from Egypt and lots of people from Assyria. Okay, They will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices in the rocks and on the thorn bushes and at all the water holes in that day. The Lord will use a razor hired from, from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and private parts and to cut off your beard. Now for us, some of us do this for looking nice, right? Some of us do. Some of us just let it all grow out. Here's the thing. The hired razor is going to strip off their hair. It was a sign of humiliation. A man without a beard uh, was a man humiliated. Okay? Gentlemen, you're free to be clean-shaven. That's not a problem. But in their time, that's what it meant. And what God's saying is, I'm going to hire a nation to be a razor to this nation and humiliate you completely. You're going to be utterly humiliated. But notice how he refers to Assyria. Assyria is a Gillette razor. God just picks up a packet of razors and does his business with the most powerful people in the world at that time. God is using them to his purpose. Can you see that? Sovereign God. Powerful. King over all. Have a look what he says next. We'll go, we'll go a little bit further on. So I've got, I've got chapter 7 to 10 today. We're not doing them verse by verse because morning tea is coming. Uh, but if we go to chapter 10 and verses 12 to 16, I want you to see how this hired razor will go. Uh, chapter 10 and verse 12. When the Lord had has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. By the strength of my hand, for he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I have removed the boundaries of nations. I have plundered their treasures like a mighty one. I have subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand has reached to the wealth of the nations as the people gather abandoned eggs, so I have gathered the countries. Verse 15, does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it or the saw boast about the one who uses it as if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up or a club brandish the one who is not wood? Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. What's the point? Do axes do jobs on their own? No, they don't. The king of Assyria, in all of his pomp, a great word, in all of his power, in all of his world-shaking military might, in the end, has only ever been a tool in God's hand. And while he sits at his strategy table and boasts about his success, God says, I'm the one who wields you, and I will humble you for your pride. Even though you're a tool in my hand, your sinfulness 
your pride will be your downfall and I will humble you. Can you see that? God's sovereign enough to lift him up, sovereign enough to pull him down. In fact, it says uh, towards the end here uh, in verses 33 to 34, uh, chapter 10, 33 to 34, See the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the great boughs with great power the lofty trees will be felled and the tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the, before the mighty one. In essence, what's going to happen? You want to be big and mighty? That's okay. The God who uses you can humble you. The very axe you are in his hand will be used to lop you off and humiliate you. Extraordinary. The most powerful kingdom in the world is a tool in the hand of God against his rebellious people. That's a sovereign God. But here's the thing. The biggest place that we see God's sovereignty, the most extraordinary place we see God's sovereignty, is in the sign that he's going to give to his people. The sign is Emmanuel. The sign that he's going to give is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's have a look at that sign that was going to be given to King Ahaz. God said, I'll give you a sign. You asked for it. He said, I don't want a sign. God said, great. I'm going to give you a sign. Here's the sign that God gives him. Now, if you have a look up on the screen here, I've got the verses laid out. You can see here down the bottom, we've got the front of the hill. So we're going to think first about how can this prophecy be fulfilled for Ahaz? And then we're going to think about how it's fulfilled later. So, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke, broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now here's the thing I want you to see. God says, I will give you a sign. A virgin will give birth to a child who will be called God with you. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And the outworking of that will be, the sign you see, the outworking of that will be, he will bring the king of Assyria. Great hope, great judgment. All bound up in this one sign. Now, once you remember, last week, Matt talked to us from Isaiah 6, and God told Isaiah, Isaiah, you are going to be announcing prophecies that no one's going to get. Do you remember that? You're going to be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Do you remember that? So here's the thing. I think God's giving Ahaz a sign that is absolutely there in big neon lights, and I don't think he's going to get it. I don't think he's going to get it. Have a look with me at what this kind of looks like in practice. So what Isaiah says to Ahaz is, there's going to be a virgin who's going to give birth to a son and his name is going to be Emmanuel. No problem so far. I've sweated on this and worked hard this week on this. Matt's done some, uh, some work on this and we've chatted backwards and forwards. I read a very good paper the other day about it. Um, it opened with... Trying to resolve who the virgin is in this passage has been debated for centuries and is probably one of the most contentious texts in the Old Testament. I love that when you read a, passage, a thing that says that. So here's, here's my take. Here's my best take. Uh, there's some very, very interesting parts in the passage. If you open up to chapter 8, 
I'm going to see if I can tell you what I think is going on and how this is fulfilled for King Ahaz. So, uh, chapter 8, and I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Maha Sha'al Hash Baz, which means, because you don't speak as much Hebrew as you used to, quick to the plunder, quick to the spoil. So I called Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of uh, Jeberechiah, as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Mahashalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. All right, what's going on? Here's what I think is going on. Speculation. So we're clear? Speculation. I don't know. This is my best reading. It appears that Isaiah had a son already because we met him before. Remember his name? A remnant shall return. There's this weird bit here where it says, call the witness priests. And then he says, verse 3, then I made love to the prophetess and she conceived. And you're like, what on earth has that got to do with the verses before it? Here's what I think is going on. I think the reliable witnesses are called to see Isaiah have a second marriage. Not to another woman at the same time. I'm assuming that his wife has died. And that this woman is called the prophetess is really interesting. She could have just been Isaiah's wife, right? Make love to your wife. She's called the prophetess. I think he's met a prophet who was, when Ahaz received the prophecy, a virgin. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Somebody in your kingdom here, a prophetess right now, will in the future give birth to a son. So she's a virgin now. That's true for Ahaz. In the future, she's going to give birth to a son. I think the witnesses are called to watch a wedding. I think that the I then went and made love to the prophetess is actually saying this is the virgin giving birth to the child. And his name is going to be, well, bear with me, he's got a, he's got a son who's a sign. Have a look at... Um, Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 8. Bear with me. It's going to come, I think, I hope. You can tell me afterwards over morning tea. Uh, have a look at verses 17 to 18. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. This is Isaiah speaking. And I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel for the Lord Almighty who dwells in Mount Zion. What are my children? My children are signs and symbols. Who is the one who's going to be the promised son? My son. Who's going to be a sign and a symbol in Israel. And so he's going to be called quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Here's the thing. Do you remember? I had two colors on the screen. I had two colors on the screen. Up the top, I had Emmanuel, God with us. And down the end, God, God said, I'm going to give you a sign. Emmanuel will come. Da, 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 da. the king of Assyria will come. Do you remember that? One in orange and one in blue. The sign is Emmanuel will come. The fulfillment is swift to the plunder, swift to the spoil is the name of the child who's going to be born. Makes sense. That's the judgment that's going to come. The judgment that's going to come. So I think the fulfillment for Ahaz is a virgin in his court 
is going to conceive and have a son. The son who is going to be called God with us is actually going to be called quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, because that's the ultimate line of judgment that's coming on this nation. A sign that you're to be ever perceiving but never understanding. It's ultimately going to be impossible for him to get it. But what about the distant future? So I think it meant something to Ahaz, but here's the thing. I don't think he got it. What about the distant future? Well, this is pretty cool. Uh, In Matthew, it says this. Joseph, son of David. So an angel appears to Joseph. You may know some of these words. An angel appears to Joseph. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this is to to take place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Pretty cool. The ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy that was given to Ahaz is here. It's Jesus. And when you say to me, oh, yeah, yeah, but hang on. Your explanation about what happened in Ahaz's time didn't work out because the boy wasn't called Emmanuel. Remember what he was called? Sheer, hash, bash, right? Whatever it was. Here's the thing. Jesus isn't called Emmanuel either, is he? He is God with us, but his name is actually called Jesus. So he is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is the one, but in both cases, the Emmanuel actually has another name, a name that speaks about God's ultimate purpose. So has Emmanuel come? Yes. Emmanuel's called quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Has Emmanuel come? Yes, he's called God saves. That's what Jesus means. He's called God saves. Brilliant. The second part, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, we see an awesome, awesome prophecy. Open it up. It's worth looking at. It's going to encourage you. Even if the rest of it's confused, you're going to love this. So just open it up with me. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, the light has dawned. There is a glorious future coming. Even though judgment's going to come on Israel, there's a glorious future coming. We've got the name, Naphtali, the north of Israel. His name will be wonderful. His identity will be mighty God. What do we see in the Gospels? Turn to Matthew. Just turn it up. It's going to be good. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Back of your Bibles, if you don't know where to find it. Back of your Bibles, first of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Matthew chapter 4. If you've got a page number, call it out. 967, if you're looking up in your Bibles there. So here we are. Matthew chapter 4. And verses 12 to 16. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, which is the north of Israel, right? Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. 
700 years before Jesus was born, God said a light would come into the land in the north of Israel. He said a great one would be born who would be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor. And Jesus was born and moved to the north of Israel to fulfill the word that had been spoken 700 years earlier. Is God able to fulfill his promises? The answer is yes. And we see this wonderful government and peace most brilliantly in Revelation, which we won't read now, but it's fulfilled awesomely there. I want to leave you with one more thought, which you'll tie it all together. Uh, there's the idea in this passage, which is going to come up again and again, of a remnant, that God will save the faithful. God will save the faithful. What is a remnant, I hear you ask? In Isaiah chapter 17, we hear these words. Isaiah chapter 17. Sorry, you're going to have to flick back again. Isaiah chapter 17, and I'll read for you verses 4 to 7. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade, and the fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when reapers harvest the standing grain, gathering the grain in their arms, as when someone gleans the heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. It's not making any sense yet. Hang with me. Verse 6. Yet some gleanings will remain, as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, Four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord. In that day, the people will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. Will the whole tree of olives be saved? The answer is no. Faithless Israel will be judged. God is going to use Assyria to beat the tree. The olives will fall. The people will lose the promised land. But as there are olives left at the top of the tree, so too a few faithful people will be saved. These are the verses in Isaiah chapter 10. In that day, the remnant of Israel, that's that name, that precious few. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down. They won't keep turning to the superpowers of the world, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God, Though your people be like the sand of the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. God will judge, but he will save his precious faithful few. Here's where we're finishing today. Thank you for bearing with me. Here's where we're finishing. Is God trustworthy? Can you trust him today? Is he trustworthy? I'll give you four reasons why. God is trustworthy because he tells us what's to come, and he fulfills what he said. God is trustworthy because he tells us what's to come and he fulfills what he said. God can be trusted because he has the power to make it happen. Irresistible, global power resides in the hand of God. He has the power not just to declare it, but to make it happen. We can trust that God is trustworthy because he provided a saviour. Amidst all of this judgment that we hear in Isaiah, God has provided the ultimate saviour in Jesus, the one who is mighty God, wonderful counsellor, prince of peace. He has provided that one. You can trust him. And finally, as you wonder how many people are going to be saved, am I the only one trusting God in the midst of a world that seems to not be trusting God? Can I encourage you, God will save a faithful remnant. He will. He will. He will take into glory all of those who are trusting him. And I'm going to pray for you today as it's, some of you are finding it easy to trust God. Be encouraged.
Some of you will be finding it hard to trust God now, and you'll be wondering, is he worth my whole commitment? And I'm saying, turn away from the props of this world to the only one who's trustworthy, the living God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your immense power, for your incredible grace. I thank you, Father, that you declare in advance what you will do and you have said that you will take your faithful ones to be with you forever. Help us to keep trusting you this week. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.